Judges chapter 1 here. There in verse 2 it says, I have delivered them into your hand. And as we follow this out, we find that it's also mentioned there in the book of Numbers, as Moses was uh, told this about uh, a group, and Joshua was told this. And once again, here in the book of, of Judges, Judges chapter 7, Judges chapter 7 and verse 9. If you'd look at this with me, we find that this is a common way that God does his business. And he does this for his people. It's not your battle. It is my battle. Here in Judges chapter 7 and verse 9, And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thy hand. How God works the awesome power of God, the ability to cause people to do things that puts them in a position that they can be delivered by God into the hands of someone else. In the book of First Kings, this is also brought up, as we find there in the book of, of Judges chapter 1, the Lord said, I have delivered. And this is truly a statement that is common in the scriptures, that God has delivered. He has delivered the people into the hands. In 1 Kings chapter 20, in 1 Kings chapter 20, we read these words. 1 Kings chapter 20. And verse 26. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 26. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Apek to fight against Israel. Now this doesn't look good because we're going to find a host of people that are in the, in the Syrians. The children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thy hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched one over against the other seven days, and so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Apek into the city, and there was a wall, uh, fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city and into the inner chamber. And his servants said unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel, peradventure he shall save thy life. Now that ropes on their heads was ropes around their neck. We deserve to die, but we plead for mercy. But did you notice here how many that the Lord said, I will deliver into their hands? How, two small groups of Israelites, it's called, and this whole host. And again, we find that principle that is brought out here in the book of Judges, I have delivered them into your hands. Now, in looking at those 10 that went into the land with uh, Joshua and Caleb and came back with an evil report, they did not believe that. They did not believe that God had given them that land. God had said all through 
I've given this land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the children of Israel. I've given it to them. And those 10 came back and says, he cannot do it. Well, by the faith that God gives to his people, these guys realize that it's God that's doing this, that God is the victor. When it came to Jericho, this is how you're going to do it. And to a normal student of warfare, marching around a city and keeping quiet for seven days, six days, and then on the seventh day doing it seven times is a foolish stunt. But God said, that's the way you're going to do it. And as a result, the victory was theirs. This is how God, it is so different than us. It is so unplanned by us. We couldn't figure out how to do that. Well, it's interesting as we follow this, we find in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 3. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 18, we read this. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 18, this is a light thing, a small thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. <laughs> I read that and it's amazing. This is just a small thing. It's a light thing for the Lord to do this. Well, when we measure almightiness against finiteness, it is a small thing. This is just a light thing in the sight of the Lord, and he will deliver all these people. In the, again, in the book of Second Chronicles, we have this, this constant reminder. Can you imagine how many times the prophets of old preached on this subject when it looked like things were just going haywire? That he said, well, let's look at the scriptures. Let's go back to the scriptures. You know, really, that's all we have. What we have to say about it is worthless. What God has to say about it is credibility. And that's the only thing that the Holy Spirit will use, is His Word. Now, we pray that while we're sharing it, we're using His Word. But if we're just using philosophy, if we're just losing, using historical events, we're wasting our time. But the Holy Spirit will use what is written here in the Word of God. Again, in the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have this brought out again, verse 15, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 15. We have that this, the battle is not ours. The battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. It tells us that here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 15. And he said, hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. That should settle the issue. Thus saith the Lord unto you. Be not afraid, nor dismayed, by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up from the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Can you imagine having someone tell you the plans and where people are going to be that you're after? You don't have to have a helicopter. You don't have to have drones. You just, the Lord said that's where you'll meet him and that's where you'll defeat him. So the battle is not yours, but God's. How gracious this is. You know, when we get to looking at it, we can truly 
Uh, and truly, it, it's no different what we find recorded when Lazarus is in the tomb. The battle is not ours. The people there had already come to the conclusion that this man was going to be raised in the resurrection of the last day. Both sisters confessed that. Now, a bunch of the friends probably didn't realize that, but those sisters confessed that he will be raised in the resurrection of the last day. Well, when we find the Lord Jesus going up to that tomb and calling out, roll the stone away, overriding what the sisters had said. Don't do that. He's already stinks because he's four days old. And here we have the Lord saying, the battle is not yours. The battle is my battle. And he is infinite. And it says there, Lazarus come forth. And we read the scriptures, Lazarus came forth. What does it mean when he is doing that with us from a spiritual standpoint, from our dead in trespasses and sin, our dry boneness, that he would come up and raise us to the spiritual life. The battle is not ours. It is his. And the battle is not the preachers or the Sunday school teachers. The battle is his. So this is what we find through the scriptures, that this battle of saving people is not our battle. It's the battle is the Lord's. In in, a, um, in John chapter 11, if we keep this in mind, these thoughts that we've watched through the scriptures, that the battle is not yours, I will deliver. In John chapter 11, we have a wonderful statement made here that just fits this, this thought, these, these thoughts about God's ability to do his business. It says here in John chapter 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. What a statement. It's it's similar to what was shared with Judah and with Simeon when they were called on to go after the, the Canaanites. I will deliver them into your hand. And this is what we find Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection. And I'm the life. There's nobody going to have anything happen to them without me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I will deliver them. And then in, uh, in verse 25, or verse uh, 43, verse 43 of that same chapter, John chapter 11, verse uh, 43, it says, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The battle is not yours. It was an impossible situation for them, and they realized that. They did realize, the two sisters did realize, that he's guaranteed a resurrection in the last day. They knew that his heart was right with God. They knew that he had been converted. They knew he had been raised from the dead. They knew that he had been born again. And uh, we find this very thing uh, is carried out. The battle is not yours. The battle is mine. I will take care of it. I will win the battle. And we even find out that there are those who know 40 years before it happened. They knew it was going to happen. All right, one other verse on this subject as we think about that statement that God made to Judah 
and to Simeon, I will deliver them into your hands. What confidence you can have then. What confidence in God when you have God saying that. One verse in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And verse 18. The battle is not yours. I will deliver them. Of his own will begat he us by the word of truth. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, first fruits of his creatures. So here, once again, we have the inside story. The, the truth of how God does his business is revealed to his people, and they take confidence that it's God's way, God's business, and he will do exactly what he purposes to do. That's what he did with Judah and Simeon when he told them, I've chosen Judah to go out and fight against the Canaanites, and I've delivered them into your hand before they ever went into battle. Well, there's another thing over there in that uh, passage of Scripture I'd like to look at tonight. There in the book of Judges chapter 1. In Judges chapter 1, we find this. We read it, but we'd like to look at it. Judges chapter 1. And we read there in verse 4, Judges chapter 1, verse 4, it says there, from the wilderness, and this, excuse me, I'm in Joshua. Judges chapter 1, verse 4. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. And they found the king of Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonah Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him. Now, you may ask yourself, why in the world would they cut the thumbs off and the big toes? Now, I, I worked with a fellow one time, his name was Bob Snyder, and he had an elevator for putting hay up in a barn, and he, the shield on the chain got lost, and he didn't take care of it, and he stood on that chain, and he got tipped over, and it twisted his big toe off. And so he had one big toe, and he didn't have another one on the other foot. He says, Norm, I had to learn to walk again. I, it was like learning... A baby again, because I that so much bouncer. Well, there's two things that they did. Number or three things probably. Number one is very humiliating. Number two, it took the fight out of these people and the ability to run away. They couldn't draw a bow, they couldn't throw a spear, and they couldn't run. They were essentially taken out of the battle by this activity. And that's what he did to those seventy other kings. And as we look at this, it struck me how does God 
take the fight and the flight out of us when he saves us. How does he do that? Because he does. He takes the fight and the flight. We're not interested in running away, and we're not interested in being his enemy any longer. And it's kind of like him taking our thumbs and our toes off, only in a spiritual way, because he really does do things that causes us to be settled in him and not attempt to run away and not attempt to fight him. We are submitted to him in the salvation that he gives us. So he takes a raging maniac, and it doesn't take us long to go into the New Testament in particular and find raging maniacs that he took care of. One was a maniac of Gadara. Another one, I look at Saul of Tarsus. There wasn't a nickel's worth of difference between the two of them. And both of them had their purpose in, in God's purpose. That one man was so settled down, he was sitting and clothed in his right mind, he wanted to follow Jesus. And he, Jesus said, you need to go home <laughs> and tell your family what's happened to you. So he took the fight and he took the flight out of that man. He truly was used by God. God used this means to settle. This practice describes how it is, and it was uh, quite common, it appears, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, at least among those pagans. Uh, in this book, which is the most violent book in all the Bible, it starts off pretty violent. 10,000 men are gone in one's chapter, and a king has his thumbs and then he confesses, you know, that's exactly what I did to the kings. And so what I get, I deserve. That's what he says. What does God do to take all that fight and running out of lost sheep? What does he do? We know by nature, all we are is fight and run. We want to fight God and we want to run from God. That's our nature to do. And God does something to stop us, to cause us to quit fighting him and cause us to quit running from him. In fact, we want to be with him. There are several passages in Scripture that help us to understand this very thing that the children of Judah did to this king is a reflection of what God does for us to cause us to be settled in him and not go looking for somebody else or something other thing. You know, in, um, I was visiting with someone the other day, and all of the Old Testament characters that we find doing some horrific things, the uh, patriarchs doing some horrific things, they never wanted to leave God. David didn't want to leave God, even when he committed that great crime. Moses didn't want to leave God. They, there. All right, let's look at this. As we think about this, it's like him calming a wild ass's colt. Job said, man be born like a wild ass's colt. And that means unrideable. <laughs> You're going to get thrown off. And the Lord has the ability of taking the situation and calming it down. All right. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2, because the Lord is going to take the 
fight and the flight right out of us when he saves us. We are settled down. We're no longer wanting to run. That, that king did all he could do to elude Judah. Well, once he was captured and they dealt with him, guess what? He didn't leave again. And he never fought against him again. All right, here in the book of Romans, the book of Romans, it's just so interesting because religion has it turned upside down and backwards. It's they, religion, teaches that we're controlled by a carrot and a stick. You do good, we'll give you a carrot. You do bad, we're going to give you a stick. And that's rules and regulations. Well, notice this. In verse 4 of Romans chapter 2, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, repentance is not, and you don't find it in parentheses there, you don't find it in small letters, repenting of your sins. Repentance is truly taking God's side against us. You know, once the Lord gives us salvation, we are glad to take God's side against us. You're right in this matter. I am a sinner. And I found out that God saves sinners. And he calms us down with that very thing. It is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. All of the activity that God did through the Old Testament in punishing Israel for all the things that they did, did not cause one person to have repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And then follow this with me, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God truly, spiritually speaking, takes the thumbs off so we can't fight and takes the big toes off so we can't run. He causes us to settle down. And here in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we think uh, restraint. Oh, my goodness. Constraint. I don't know if I want that. Well, here it is. For the love of Christ constraineth us. What does constrain mean? Restrict us. Is it law? No, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. We find out that God's love in Christ Jesus for his lost sheep settles us down, constrains us, brings us to sit at his feet. It is the love of Christ that constrains us because uh, we thus judge if one died for all, then we're all dead. How wonderful it is that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. These things are what God uses to show you, you can't leave, you won't fight, and you won't run. You're going to be with me. You're here. And with our full consent. In the book of Luke chapter 19, if you go into Luke chapter 19, we find an illustration of this. In Luke chapter 19, the Lord Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem, and there's going to be a great throng of people casting down palm fronds and clothes in the way. Well, notice here in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, we read these words about uh, this whole incident. He shares with them, with his disciples, he says, Go ye into the village over against you, in which at your entering in 
ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. Now that's quite a description that the Lord gave to his disciples about, he told them exactly where this colt was. He told us a description of the colt, and he told us that this colt has never been ridden before. No one has done this. He's not broken. He's not even green broke. So, if any man asks you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent, Luke chapter 19, verse 32 We read this. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. Okay. Take him. And they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments on the colt. Now this is such an interesting statement that's made about this unbroken colt that Jesus sat on him. No bucking, no kicking, completely submissive to the master. And that is truly a picture of God's people submissive to the master. He takes the fight and the flight right out of us in our salvation. And we have no interest in leaving, and we have no interest in fighting with him. We believe the word that he gave us, and we don't argue with it. If it says some things that was unpopular in our religion, we find out it's quite popular now, because that's exactly what God had to do to save us. So he settles us down. I can just see, and maybe the Lord jumped up on him, or was helped by a disciple, but that colt did nothing. It was his nature to buck, but he was overcome by the sovereign grace of this master. And he didn't have any issues when he sat on him. And that's just what God does for us. When the Lord comes upon us and we be born like a wild ass's colt, self-willed, strong-willed, running, doing our own thing, and God comes along, we still have that wild ass's cult nature, but he has settled it down, and we're going to set down with him. All right, as we follow this through, what did they do to that king? They took away his ability to fight and run, and how thankful the church is that God takes away our ability to fight God and to run away from God. We're not going to argue with him over the word. We're not... Now, We've said several times, if we don't know what it means, it's not going to be contrary to what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. We just don't have understanding. The Holy Spirit hasn't revealed it to us. And sometimes we simply have to say, I know what it doesn't say. This is not telling me that all the rest of the Bible is wrong, and this one is right. So we have this beautiful statement made throughout the Scriptures about this. Now, over in the book of, uh, going back to the book of Numbers, going back to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Now, it, it is, uh, we went through there, we're going to be dealing with this some more 
as we go through other books of the Bible, but in Numbers chapter 14, when those spies came back from spying out the land, and there was a, a great, well, Mike and I were talking, 10 out of 12 is a pretty large percentage. 10 out of 12 came back with an evil report. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 20, we read this. And the Lord said, I have... Am I in the right place? Yes. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall they, uh, any of them that provoke me see it. Now, what did they do? They fought God and they ran from God all the time. But, the next verse, verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, makes all the difference in the world. Caleb had another spirit. What was this spirit? The spirit of God. New birth spirit. And what did he do? He neither fought God or ran from God. And he, he tried to encourage those people to go in, and he tried to encourage them not to go in after they made up their mind to. This is folly. God said, you're not going in. So he believed God. He trusted God. And that's what the church does. And they're not in, interested from leaving this point that they have, that God had brought them into a comfortable place with him, that he's put away their sin and given them the knowledge of putting away sin, and then... He said, you're at peace. I've, well, dad used to have chickens that flew over the fence. You know what he did? He clipped their wings. <laughs> and that's truly what God does for us. He clips our wings. We, the flight is gone. We don't want that anymore. And I've had people tell me that their, their children were all saved. They're just not, they're just away from the Lord now. And I heard a preacher the other day say something. I'd like to know where that is. Because there's no place you can get away from the Lord. And if they're running and they are arguing with God, they probably don't know the Spirit of God anyway. That's just the way it is. He is going to cause people to come to him and sit around him. And Peter. You know, Peter denied the Lord three times. That last time, I knew there was a place in the New Testament in one of the Gospels as soon as he said it, Jesus turned around and looked at him. Out of hate? No. The love of God constrains us. Brought him back to center. And he went out and wept bitterly. All right. I may have that here in just a moment. So the servant Caleb, because he had another spirit in him, made all the difference. Made every bit of difference. All right. Go with me to the book of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We find the difference between Judas and Peter again. Judas still running and still fighting. Peter 
has his thumbs taken off and his big toes taken off. He has no interest in leaving. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 54. Luke chapter 22 and verse 54. We read this. Luke chapter 22, verse 54. And they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. Oh, I've heard preachers give the Peter down the road right there. He followed afar off. The Lord said, you're all going to deny me. I must do this alone. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and there sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with them. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know not him, him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter says, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, confidently and firm, saying, Of a truth, this fellow is also with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake the cock crow, and you know, oftentimes we don't think the Lord is as close as he is to the situation. It says in the next verse, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How that he had said before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus turned and looked upon Peter. Not in indignation, but in love and constraint. Because that's how we met him after the resurrection. Peace be unto you. In Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Verse 35. Luke chapter 8, verse 35, we read this. And they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The Lord, when he saved him, caused him to want to be with him. That's just... The fight was gone, the flight was gone. How gracious it is that the Lord would cause us to be settled. Saul of Tarsus is much the same way. Uh, he had learned whatsoever state he was in, therewith to be content. That's so much different than he was before. Well, we're going to call, uh, bring this to a close. Uh, time is about up, but we have a, a few other verses that we want to read, so this is going to be like a railroad train. We're going to unhitch right now, and we'll pick it right up the next time, and we'll look at this verse a little more. We're going to go to several passages in the book of, of Ezekiel. But just remember, this king had his thumbs and his big toes off. It was a common practice to take the fight and the flight out of people. They could no longer fight they could no longer run. And that's what exactly God does for his church. 
He puts them in a state of mind that they don't want to leave. They're not going to argue with him. They're going to sit, be clothed, and in their right mind. And how glorious that is. When we read scripture, we just say, Lord, I don't understand it. Reveal it to me. But I'm not going to argue with you over anymore. And I don't have to leave here. I can sit down and this will be where I'll be until he takes me home. We'll stop there for tonight.